Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Hello, this is Bill Radke, KUOW's Week in Review host. What if there were a show once a week where we pulled together excellent local journalists, informed, thoughtful, curious, likable people, and we caught you up on the news just in the space of an hour. You've got other things to do, but we we make you smart about what happened this week and tell you stories about it and details about it and what it all means. That'd be Week in Review, and that would be supported by you, powered by you. I'm telling you this because we're in pledge drive mode right now. Here's the phone number, area code 206-543-9595. And here's the website, KUOW.org. You just click the donate button. And this is important because, uh, you know, KUOW is not going to be around. We're not going to fare any better than a lot of these local journalist outlets who are they're struggling or they're closing and they're downsizing unless we can count on sustainable ongoing investments from the people who use this service. So uh, pledge drives where we come on the radio and say, can anybody give a few bucks? Um, they don't. That doesn't work as well as it used to when I started out at KUOW. You know, people, uh, you, you have a lot of other choices to listen to. You can consume KUOW in other ways with our podcasts and our online stories. And, uh, and, so, and we know that one out of ten people who listen to KUOW also becomes a donor. That's the way it's been going. So we have this revenue shortfall of, I think it's now $320,000. Okay, so, but here's the here's what we can do about it. We can modernize, we can recognize the way people live and the way people uh, contribute to uh, sources that they care about. And that's basically a subscription model, a voluntary subscription model. So KUOW can survive if you will go to KUOW.org, even if whatever it is a month, a $5 a month, $100 a month, everyone's in a different spot. But if you go to KUOW.org slash donate or call 206-543-9595 and just say how much you can ship in every month, then KUOW can invest can survive, and can give you great programming all through the future. So thanks for doing that right now. Now is the time where I say, welcome to Friday, because it's time to start the show. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review, and I'm so happy to have this panel of local journalists with me. Independent health journalist Joanne Solberner. Hi, Joanne. Hi. Insider investigative reporter Catherine Long. Hi, Catherine. Hey. KUOW's housing reporter Joshua McNichols. Hi, Joshua. Hey. And by the way, you can watch this show on Facebook or YouTube if you want. You just search KUOW Public Radio. Now to the news. Our first topic today, Jay Inslee out. Our governor announced he's not going to run for an unprecedented fourth term. He said he's done a lot, and it is time. We have the best climate policies in the United States. We've got great new action against gun violence, protecting women's right of choice. We have the best family leave. We've got all this great achievement over a decade and a half, and I've been very honored to play some role in that. But there comes a time, there's a you know, there's a season for everything, and this is a season to pass the torch. Now, there are so far at least two high-profile Democrats expected to run, but the head of the state Republican Party, Caleb Heimlich, says not so fast. 
the announcement by Governor Inslee does give us an opportunity, having an open seat race for a governor. Catherine, have any Republicans yet declared their candidacy, candidacy for this open race for governor? Yeah, one has a Richland school board member, uh, Semi Bird uh, is his name. And uh, what is also striking is some of the Republicans who have not declared but are maybe potentially could be candidates, mm-hmm. you were telling me earlier. Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, Jamie Herrera Butler comes to mind. Uh, she is no longer in Congress, and a lot of people attribute that to her uh, standing up against uh, President Trump. And so, yeah, she has, uh, she's not yet um, declared. But how, how about on the Democratic side? What do we know? Well, we've got a strong contender in uh, Bob Ferguson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's come out. Uh, I think he's probably going to be the 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 top contender on the on the Democratic side. Um, and Hillary Franz, Washington's commissioner of public lands, has also said that she's exploring a bid. Right. How about this? President Biden runs for reelection unless he starts feeling poorly and they want another tall white male who has run an executive office before and is available. I don't think, yeah, there's, a, there's no shortage of those around. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Uh, okay, so we'll, uh, we'll surely be watching all that unfold. Uh, in that comment I played a moment ago from Governor Inslee, he said he's proud of his record on climate, gun violence, and reproductive rights. Health reporter Joanne Silberner, what about the biggest health news of the century? Jay Inslee and the COVID pandemic. I think he did pretty well. Uh, We have lower death and infection rates than all but five other states. He stood up quickly. February 29th, 2020 was his very first executive order. Eventually released 85 of them. He was was on the ball. He He was on message. He was courageous. You know, he took good amount of heat, especially in the last election, on his his stands. And he was... You mean on mandates, vaccine yeah, mandates, mandates, mass mandates, mandates, closures, business closures? Yeah, he took, a, he took a lot of heat, and he stuck to his guns on that. He was... He really stuck to his message. You know, he was tested positive twice, and his message then was, you know, we got to keep at it, we got to keep doing it, and uh, take this as a signal to keep on protecting yourself and protecting other people. I thought I was I was pretty impressed. It was, you know, given the environment in the country and maybe a little less so in the state, he really came out in in favor of public health. Hmm. And housing reporter Joshua McNichols, what did Inslee do and not do about the housing housing uh, shortage, not just in the Puget Sound area, but statewide? Yeah, well, you know, kind of like with COVID, he's he's been sort of, you know, taking sticking out a leadership position on that and acknowledging how big the problem is. I started paying closer attention to him in 2022, back when lawmakers like Jessica Bateman were trying to pass a middle housing bill. And I still remember when during a press conference, I asked him how, you know, how he would convince skeptical mayors to support the bill, which he backed. And he said, well, I get that. You know, I'm I get that it's hard. I'm an elected official. Um, and what I do is encourage them just to blame it on me then. I'm taking mm-hmm. some heat yeah. off the local officials. And and I kind of feel like that's the way Jay Inslee is. He kind of did it with COVID. You know, he kind of did it with um, the carbon cap and trade system, basically. It's like... Um, you know, but but this year that middle housing bill. We passed. should explain the middle housing bill just briefly. What that is, right? That's the bill that would allow more townhomes and things like that, duplexes, triplexes, townhomes in areas that are currently dominated by single family homes. So, right. So some of the local officials who were 
either didn't support that or they did, but they were getting a lot of heat from their constituents. Yeah, I mean, when when Inslee was saying, um, you know, I'm taking the heat off mayors, he was standing right next to Bruce Harrell, who at that point was not, you know, was barely saying anything about the middle housing bill. You know, he wasn't supporting it. And then this year, the governor, uh, you know, and Jessica Bateman and Andrew Barkas and others got a lot of support from got more support from cities. They got enough support to make it pass. And, you know, they're willing to they were willing to compromise. But Inslee sets the sort of tone for compromise. He seems to be he has high ideals, but then ultimately he's often willing to make these sacrifices, these these compromises that can allow him to claim, you know, things that are victories of sort of things that are a little shorter than he initially hoped for. For example, he asked for $400 billion in money for affordable housing this year. He only got, you know, I heard him say yesterday on the on the news that he got a billion dollars of that. Um, but I've seen news reports that actually say, actually it's closer to 400, 400 million, you know. So mm-hmm. that's a smaller amount than he asked for by far. But he's still kind of declaring it a victory. And he's saying that lawmakers heard the call. So I think that's kind of the way he operates. He gets out in front of these issues and he is flexible, and that allows him to claim victories, basically. Hmm. Any other observations about our uh, 20 months from now outgoing governor? Covered it? I saw that he told the Seattle Times, quote, I've got 20 more months in the harness, and I'm going to be pulling on the plow for 20 more months. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does without the pressure of an election. Yeah. He said he's not not going to have much time for fishing because he's still dedicated to uh, progress on climate change. Uh, we'll see. 72 years old. Okay, that's topic one here on KUOW's Week in Review. Topic number two this week, tens of thousands of Amazon workers returned to downtown Seattle for at least three days a week. That's what they're told to do. And they took light rail. No, just kidding. Light rail's, <laughs> light rail's broken because somebody punched a clock through the roof. So they took the we- that ramp to the West Seattle Bridge. Oh, wait. <laughs> or they- the ferry from Bainbridge. Or the state ferry, yeah. <laughs> no. um, reporter Catherine Long, you have covered Amazon so much at Insider. How do these corporate Amazon employees feel about returning to the office this week? I think there's certainly mixed sentiment. Uh, you know, folks posting on LinkedIn were, uh, in some cases, uh, happy to be going back to the office. One of them posted a selfie with Andy Jassy, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, who is also returning to the office this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that this is more of a sign of the, the pendulum swinging back to employers having more control over where their employees work. And during the time of uh, you know booming stock prices and uh, labor shortages, uh, employees could demand to work from home. And now that Amazon has laid off thousands of people employers employees are getting the message you know if if i don't want to be next i better <laughs> better try to show up to the office um, that being said, uh, not everybody at Amazon is going back to work. Um, there, there's significant flexibility uh, baked into the company's rules on, around that as well. Yeah, like you were telling me, for example, if you're part of a team and the team gets permission, you all could work off-site. That's right. Mm-hmm. Any other reaction to that? Well, I just want to say I predicted on the show that there would be pushback and that people wouldn't show up, and maybe I'm wrong. You mean just not show up? Can you do that and keep your job? Well, stay home and continue to work from home. Is How much of that is going on? Do you have a sense? 
Um, I mean, I, I have not covered this return to office phase uh, very in depth. I've, I've covered several of Amazon's back and forths on on their return to office plans over the past couple of years. But um, my sense is that there are a significant number of employees at Amazon who want to continue working from home. And it's significant enough that some teams will continue to work mm-hmm. from home. But um, most employees are, are expected to go back into the office. Yeah. But, you know, they're going to face problems getting getting here. You know, yeah. with the, I don't know how many come in by light rail, but, you know, with the problems that they're having, I can tell you the ferries are having some pretty significant problems. Some of them might find, you know, who haven't had to come in and who haven't faced. There's a lot of traffic coming in today, actually, <laughs> from downtown. That, yeah. so I guess that's people who have bailed out of light rail. For a Friday. Yeah, and the thing that I'm really watching here is what this means for downtown. And I know there's a lot of hope that this could be the thing that turns things around, but I think we have to be a little bit realistic when we consider, you know, even these Amazon workers are just coming back three days a week. So, you know, even if every single company downtown copies that model, at at best that puts downtown Seattle at three-fifths its original strength, right? Mm -hmm, You know, At best. So, um, I mean, that's how long you've got butts and seats. So, Mm -hmm. you know, downtown still going to need some kind of a radical shift to diversify its economic recovery. And the longer the stagnation goes on, you know, the more interesting and innovative stuff we could start to see downtown. You know, we've we already, you know, there's they're leaning into the existing other two stools of the three-legged stool downtown. They're leaning into um, tourism and trying to bring in more residents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we're going to see more tchotchke shops and, and uh, you know, more activation of public spaces by the Downtown Seattle Association and more arts happenings. And maybe if the city has its way, a few office to residential condo conversions. But, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see if if it if the changes come from these kind of top down ideas for downtown or if they come sort of from the bottom mm. as these things don't work out and property owners get more desperate. And then we start to see some concessions in terms of what kinds of things they'll allow to be in their spaces. And maybe they'll rent spaces out for lower rents and, you know, maybe more arts organizations will come in. Yeah, let's see some innovation. Uh, and these these corporate Amazonians are not unionized. Um, they don't have a union to complain to, right? Speaking of which, <laughs> Catherine, what's happening with the Amazon warehouse union movement? Because they organized in that New York warehouse. And what else? Yeah. So think back to a year ago. We had this really surprising victory, unlikely victory, uh, in an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. For the first time, workers voted to unionize. Since then, though, not much has happened. Workers at other warehouses uh, who sought to unionize with the same with the same organization, the Amazon Labor Union, they their votes have failed. Um, the Amazon Labor Union has not made any progress on bargaining a contract with Amazon at this warehouse. Mm-hmm. And as uh, me and my colleague Jack Newsham reported last month, and then again this week, there are serious and and troubling revelations coming out about the leaders of the Amazon Labor Union. Chris Smalls was caught on camera fighting an Amazon employee in the parking lot. Although that other guy seemed to pick the fight more than Chris Smalls did. I think, yes, yes, that's right. So the other employee did pick the fight. I think that, you know, Chris Smalls had an opportunity to walk away. We saw in the video. And instead of walking away, he took some cheap shots. Okay. (laughs) Um, So he was caught on camera fighting fighting an employee. There are questions raised about $20,000 in child support that he owed. Uh, He did eventually pay that in in two lump sum payments. Um, He changed the constitution of the Amazon Labor Union to effectively make him uh, the president uh, for for years until a new contract is signed, which which 
could be very far down the pike. And there's a lot of um, uncomfortable tension within the Amazon labor union right now that is distracting from the issue of taking on this corporate behemoth. Um, it's it's making it more difficult for them to build solidarity within their warehouse, let alone other warehouses. Yeah, well, what if Chris Smalls stepped away or whatever, for some reason weren't in the picture? Structurally, what should we know about the prospects for Amazon unionization? Because there sure was a big feeling of like, wow, this is this is a new day for unionization at Amazon and who knows who else. Yeah, um, that feeling has not changed. More and more warehouses continue to uh, ally themselves with labor organizations, the Teamsters being one. Um, the Amazon Labor Union has done outreach across the country with warehouses, some of whom have ultimately decided to organize themselves instead of affiliating with the Amazon Labor Union. Um, so the momentum has perhaps slowed slightly. It has not stopped. Hmm. Yeah. So there's a team, so they're, they're looking to affiliate with other bigger unions. And I asked because I was in a union for 18 years when I was at NPR, and we were part of AFTRA, now AFTRA SAG at the time. And even with that backing, you know, every time we went into negotiations, we were facing people, lawyers, very well-paid lawyers who had, you know, spent their lives doing this, as, you know, us with our union reps and, and uh, some of the union lawyers sometimes. But we were just facing big people. And the idea of an independent union just seems to me to be just a, a non-starter. I can't imagine them being able to be successful. Well, it basically puts these small independent unions, um, it, it makes them more dependent on the, they just depend on the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, to, you know, to listen to their complaints and decide whether or not to issue settlements. I mean, um, we, we've got, you know, sort of an independent union here at the Amazon Fresh where they declared themselves a union, which they're legally entitled to do even before they take a vote. And, you know, they had this in common with the Amazon labor union that they don't have the backing of a bigger organization and the resources that come with that. And so, um, but, you know, the NLRB has a little bit more swagger under Joe Biden than it maybe has had in the past. So I think we could maybe expect some settlements that would come down in favor of these. But it, I'm curious what the long term effects are of this well, Josh, I, th I think you're exactly right that some of these unions have started relying a lot more on NLRB rulings, which have been uh, quite favorable to unions in, in the recent years. But another criticism that's been leveled against the Amazon labor union is that one potent tool that it has at its disposal, in addition to seeking NLRB rulings, is striking, is withholding labor. And Christian Smalls, the president of the Amazon labor union, seems uninterested in um, building support for a strike among workers at this warehouse. And that's the sort of action that could force Amazon, a company with a, a giant, giant list of lawyers at its disposal. It could drag yeah. on these contract negotiations for years. Um, you know, some people say that uh, a strike is the type of action that could force Amazon to the table and force the company to actually bargain a contract with these workers, even in the absence of an NLRB ruling or even in the presence of an NLRB that is slightly less favorable to labor. Yeah, and KUW's Monica Nicholsberg told me that, and you probably know this too, Amazon's using these classic union-busting tactics to prevent additional warehouses from unionizing and avoiding signing a contract with the ALU too. Mm. Yeah, that's right. You are listening to insider investigative reporter Catherine Long, and that's KUOW housing reporter Joshua McNichols and independent health journalist Joanne Silberner. I'm Bill Radke, and together we are portraying the week gone by for you, as we do every week on KUOW's Week in Review. 
serving you and reminding you that we're in the final hours of a little campaign here. I'm taking a pause to let you know that this pledge drive is about addressing a a shortfall when it comes to pledge drives, $300,000 shortfall in membership. And that sounds like a lot. uh, But if you figure that only 10% of the people who listen to KUOW give money, you think, well, there's a big opportunity there. So if everyone who's listening right now gives as a monthly sustaining member, bye-bye shortfall. So please make a monthly gift at KUOW.org or by calling 206-543-9595. That's right. And, you know, this idea of this vision in the future of heading towards a world where we don't have pledge drives. Where we, that's I, the hope. That's the hope. I, I mean, I asked about that in the meeting. I said, is that the goal here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they said, yes, that's a goal. It's, it's not something that we can just turn on a dime and automatically start doing that. We've got to build up the momentum of these monthly sustaining memberships. But that's the goal long term is to rely on them um, and that continual source of reliable income instead of having to turn to people in pledge drives so often. That's it. Instead, go to KUOW.org and you be the solution. You can call us 206-543-9595. You know, uh, bridges need maintenance, Washington State ferries need maintenance. Light rail systems get holes punched in their roof and need maintenance. Uh, Local journalism needs maintenance as well. We heard from Alice in Puyallup who said, guilt, just guilt. Been listening for years and not contributing. Nothing is free, says Alice. Having honest journalism is very important to me. Supporting it must come from the people who benefit. Alice, that's a stand-up thing to say and do because you became a member. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Alice. Everyone benefits from an independent, insightful news organization that has our best interest in mind, and that is KUOW. I mean, we bring you fearless journalism that amplifies underrepresented voices and doesn't hold back from asking the big questions. You know, please make sure that you do whatever you can do to make sure that everyone in your community has access to this essential service. Give what you can at KUOW.org or call 206-543-9595. Okay, final thing. If more people became monthly sustaining members and just made were the bedrock for the future of local journalism, we would be able to just take a break from this pledge drive. Let me demonstrate. We're going to take a short break. And this is what it would be like. We'd be so confident. We're going to come right back with more local journalism. Stay tuned. Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. Let's continue week in review, even as you are clicking away at KUOW.org, clicking the donate button, or calling 206-543-9595. Okay, SeaTac Airport is at the center of a big class action lawsuit over pollution. 
Kent Polisari is, he calls himself a citizen scientist who does research on airport pollution and says this problem is not new. If you go to that neighborhood, there's soot all over everybody's houses. They have to power clean their their lawn furniture on a consistent basis. That's actually almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. And people aren't just concerned about dirty houses. They're concerned about the quality of the air and its effect on their health. Steve Berman is the lead attorney for this lawsuit, and he says many people in what he calls the contamination zone have higher rates of health problems and are living in a disadvantaged community. The people living in the area that are receiving the toxic pollution are diverse. They're lower income people. And as I tell people, this wouldn't be going on in Queen Anne or Medina or any wealthy community. Catherine, you reported on this airplane health issue back when you were at the Seattle Times. Will you tell us something about the health issues involved? That's right. When I was back at the Seattle Times 2019, I also talked to Kent Palisari, the citizen scientist, Mm -hmm. uh, about a University of Washington study that had just concluded at the time that was looking at what they called ultra, ultra fine particles that were uh, linked to airplane takeoff and landing. And what they knew was that these type of super fine particles, um, they seem to be correlated to a lot of diseases. They seem to be able to pass the blood-brain barrier, blood brain barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they didn't have any hard evidence as to whether these particles were linked to specific health outcomes. And I'd be really curious to hear from Joanne if the, if the science has advanced uh, since I was, I was covering this uh, four years ago. I can't tell you for sure. I, I just put in a call into someone and haven't heard back yet. But ultrafine particles, what they do is they get back to the very base of the lungs, to the very part where you have uh, where the oxygen exchange occurs between the airspace and the blood, and ultrafine particles can block that up. That's pretty serious. I mean, the, Joanna, I look, is it, are these particles from fuel or from the outside of the airplane, or do we know? I, think, I assume it's what it's what being put out by the airplane. Okay, and you know, they can just gum things up. And uh, th- I looked at the lawsuit. The lawsuit cites that UW study and claims that the, the study shows that. These particles are put out and more people get them. So presumably it is, you know, it's it's a problem. But another problem on top of that is, which is not cited in the lawsuit, is noise. And I can't figure out why they didn't cite it in the lawsuit. It may be that there's case law that, you know, says no, noise is okay. But I noticed in every response, in the responses from SeaTac, in the responses from the Port of Seattle to the lawsuit saying, you know, no, no, no. They also bring up no, no to the air pollution. They also bring up noise, and they say, "Yeah, we, you know, we've been taking care of the noise." The lawsuit doesn't bring it up, but that has noise from airports has been shown to cause you know not just stress, not just oh, I'm bothered by the noise or I can't have a conversation, but it increases the incidence of heart disease. It is is stressful. The stress makes has a real effect on the immune system. I don't know why they left that. I can't figure out why they left that noise. But on the on the air pollution side of it, it does look like, you know, it's not so good. And I really take his point about if the airport were right next to Medina, we might have seen some action. And Joshua, the backdrop here is that our government's talking about building another airport someplace. That's, that's right. And I, I'm really interested to see how these mounting studies like this 
contribute to that conversation. I mean, it, it kind of feels sometimes like the downsides of airports are just piling up. And I, I wonder at what point do we get to the point where we choose high speed rail over airports? You know, you, you may have heard that the state legislature basically just fired the commission that had been searching for a new airport site. Um, after basically everybody rejected their proposed locations, <laughs> they they said They'll fire the commission. <laughs> yeah, they fired the commission and they appointed and they said let's make a new commission. <laughs> oh, wow. and that that's basically gonna we're we're back to the drawing board. Basically, they're gonna try to do it with more community input this time and more resources. But the the new commission basically has a very similar job to do, and it's being. And and they're they're supposed to look for a new airport and can do more to consider other transportation options, but they're still mm-hmm. looking for an airport. So, what I'm wondering is if setting back the clock on the search for this airport, you know, it, it puts the decision deeper into the effects of climate change, you know, out in the future, um, and mm. and also, you know, we'll be further along in the science. And I, I'm just wondering how that will change how the pros and cons of a new airport look in balance. And what about Payne Field? Are, are people talking about Payne Field at all? Yeah, I mean, they're going to expand Payne Field. According to the last commission, I, I followed their results. They said, yeah, we need to expand Payne Field. Yeah, we need to ex- expand every airport around the region, but we still need a new airport. Huh. You know. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe Pierce County came up. Right. Although you were saying, maybe yeah. yeah when I me. yeah when I when I, I I visit Pierce County a lot to do some backcountry skiing around there, and I see signs everywhere saying no new airport. We don't want it here. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, looking at community response, what community is going to say, "Hey, come on in"? Yes, in my backyard. When it comes to airports. <laughs> uh, another story we're covering here on KOW's Week in Review this week on Seattle's first hill, a new high rise welcomed its first formerly homeless residents, and Joshua is going to tell us why this is important. But Joshua, you also uh, brought some audio. Who are we about to hear a little bit from? Uh, this is Kevin Thomas Kiso. Um, he slept outside in a park on First Hill uh, near the Stimson Green Mansion for 20 years and spent some time in prison, got addicted to heroin, and lived the last couple years of his life in a in a cubicle in a Salvation Army shelter. He just got the keys to his new apartment in this high-rise tower on First Hill. Thank you so much. This is the best thing that's happened to me in my adult life. We're glad you're Welcome here. Home. So, so the reason I wanted to bring that audio is because the, the building that he's moving into represents a change in the scale of what local housing providers can do to address the current homelessness crisis. You know, it, it's been over 50 years since the Seattle Housing Authority built its last affordable housing high-rise. I think that was Jefferson Terrace. And, you know, then in the early 1980s, some local nonprofits sprung up in the back of churches like Plymouth and Bellwether, um, you know, to take up some of the slack. But it's basically taken the decades since then for them to sort of build up enough scale that they can handle something like this. You know, um, they 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 had some help along the way. They got free land from Sound Transit in this very, you know, intensely valuable neighborhood. And that's part of a new policy where, you know, Sound Transit is supposed to give 80 percent of their land to, um, you know, affordable housing providers. But, um, you know, I, I think that's really interesting. And um, it's you, you talked. I, I heard it's an excellent piece. I got tears in my eyes listening to it, by the way, listening to, to Kevin. And but but one of the interesting things to me was that someone in your story pointed out free land from Sound Transit is not free land. That's right. I mean, because basically, you know, we have pushed so many of the levers of government 
towards this goal of providing affordable housing. And one of those is sound transit. I mean, um, Al, Al Levine, the former deputy director of the Seattle Housing Authority, said that um, we're, we're basically taking the cost of developing affordable landing off affordable housing providers because they don't have to pay for the land when sound transit gives into for free and puts that cost on sound transit. And that we should Which not... Which means the taxpayers. Exactly. So taxpayers are still paying for it. Um, it's just, you know, when we see sound transit... Um, riddled by costs, you know, and the cost of maintaining escalators and things like that. He says, <laughs> yeah. we can't forget that. And mm-hmm. maybe that's okay, you know, or maybe it's bad policy. I'm not saying one way or the other, but we just need to recognize that, you know, so many different parts of government have become part of the op- apparatus of providing affordable housing. And that's one reason you see big, successful projects like this now getting done. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, any, any, you, you're on. You used to be in Seattle, Joanne. You're yes. on Bainbridge now. Uh, what, what do you see happening with uh, affordable housing on Bainbridge? What's that like? Well, uh, there's a lot of interest. Uh, there's, a, we should have more affordable housing. We should have more townhomes. And I see a lot of townhomes there. They're just not affordable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know whether it's the price of construction, you know, new construction, because there's not much old. You know there aren't many old townhomes. They're they're all new and they're they're all high priced. So I think there's a will, but there's not. Uh, it needs more support and more subsidies. It's not. I don't think it's going to happen without more money coming in. Hmm. Although Joshua, your reporting has told me that even an expensive new townhome, in aggregate, brings down <laughs> will will tend to bring down prices relative to where they would have been. Yeah. Overall, how, how does that work? Well, a lot of this depends on. I, I mean, first of all. We know that townhomes are cheaper to build, right? Mm-hmm. They, they cost a lot less to build. I, I talked to a builder who had townhomes on a site and a single-family home right across the street from each other, basically, and the townhome was you know, $200,000 less. Mm. But that's the cost to build it. And, mm-hmm. and the only way that buyers see some of that savings is if there's a lot of competition um, among developers. Like if there's, if there's a higher ratio of... Um, homes to buyers you know the closer that gets to one to one the closer you get to you know then the developer sees they're like i got to get these buyers and they're more tempted to sell at a price that is closer to what they hmm. paid to build it yeah. so it doesn't happen right away that's for sure <laughs> yeah okay um shall we toy pause do we cover that for now that's really I really enjoyed that story. By the way, you can go. Is it up yet at KUOW.org? Yeah, they just posted they it. They did. Okay, excellent. Good good story. Our housing reporter, Joshua McNichols. We're talking. We have a health reporter here for you, Joanne Silberner. We have an insider investigative reporter, Catherine Long. And we are portraying the week gone by as we do every single week, even if you don't make a donation. But you could. You could go to KOW.org right now and become part of the solution to this little shortfall we've been telling you about. We've whittled that to $300,000 short when it comes to membership. But you can see that what we do isn't necessarily going to work forever. Subscription model is the is more the way to go than the every once in a while pledge drive. You got a few bucks. Can you sign up for a few bucks every single month? And then maybe not so many pledge drives over time. KUOW.org or call us 206-543-9595. That's right. We deliver high-quality, trustworthy news without a paywall. That's our mission. But 9 out of 10 listeners don't support the station, and that's not financially sustainable. So, you know, to keep the vital news coming to you and the community, we're changing our funding strategy, and we're turning to the 90% 
you know, who maybe have been sitting back a little bit, and not mm-hmm. giving before, to become new monthly sustaining members at KUOW.org. You know, more sustainers is going to mean a future with fewer on-air membership drives like this one, because that's part of our long-term financial plan, too. Yeah. So. And some people just can't afford it right now. But if you can, then then pick them up. 206-543-9595 or KUOW.org. Final hours here of this uh, fundraiser, so maybe we're getting a little excited. Um, but uh, excited because this drive is going to end successfully if you will sustain predictably sustain over time uh, KUOW's local journalism. One more uh, listener I want to pass on from you. This is Dylan in East Sound on Orcas Island. And Dylan says, we love hearing what's happening around the world and in our state each morning. Our mornings and weekends would not be the same without the amazing programming KUOW provides. It's time to give as a monthly sustaining member at KUOW.org, just like Dylan. Okay, yeah, that's right. Thank you, Dylan, and thank you uh, if you have an opportunity to go to KUOW.org right now. We are going to take a short break, and we're going to continue on covering the news of the week for you here on Week in Review, supported by you. Support for KUOW comes from the University of Washington. The UW has launched a campaign to restore the ASUW Shell House, where community can gather and Washington rowers can create their own legacy. Learn how to help preserve this history at uw.edu slash shellhouse. Support for KUOW comes from Amazon, partnering with Mary's Place and the Mary's Place Family Center, located at Amazon's Seattle campus. The shelter includes an on-site health clinic and computer labs for job searches and aims to help families move to permanent housing. It's KUOW's Week in Review, listener-supported Week in Review. Thanks for going to KUOW.org slash donate right now or picking up the phone and calling 206-543-9595. Bill Radke with you, along with Catherine Long, Joshua McNichols, and Joanne Silberner. And our next story, well, it happened next door. Oregon's Secretary of State is resigning after it was revealed she was working on the side as a cannabis consultant, Catherine. I think the word you used was brazen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So this is a story that the Willamette Week down in Portland has been uh, breaking in, in a succession of thrilling scoops over the past month. I, I spend about half my time in Portland, so I've been reading these as they come out. And I, I wanted to take our listeners on a little virtual Amtrak ride of the mind down Ooh. to our southern neighbor <laughs> where <Hey>. there's some <laughs> fascinating political developments. Oregon Secretary of State Shemaya Fagan, she was a, a rising star in the Democratic Party. She second highest uh, public official in the state. Um, she has uh, been uh, revealed to be, to, to be working as a consultant for uh, the second largest cannabis company in Oregon, LaModa. This is a company that uh, is owes a lot of money in taxes, ve- very behind on its taxes, uh, owes a lot of money to its vendors. Um, 
and is also a very prominent Democratic donor, including to Oregon's governor, Tina Kotek, and also to the Secretary of State, Fagan herself. Um, it turns out, Willamette Week reported that even before Fagan had officially signed a contract uh, with Lamoda to work as a consultant, uh, she had effectively been consulting with them on a state audit of the Cannabis Regulatory Agency in Oregon. They provided some feedback that seems to have been incorporated directly into the audit, which reached the conclusion that the cannabis industry should be less regulated. Huh. <laughs> How about that? How about that? Um And then after the audit was substantially completed, Fagan recused herself from it, saying that she had taken a $10,000 a month contract with this company, La Moda, that also included a $30,000 bonus every time she got them a cannabis license in another state. Now, it looked for a time like maybe the political storm was going to blow over. Kotek wasn't saying saying anything. Fagan was saying that she looks forward to rebuilding trust over the rest of her term. But uh, that all came crumbling down (laughs) on Tuesday. She abruptly resigned, and uh, it seems like her party has turned on her. (laughs) I I bet a lot of people were posting popcorn gifs, popcorn eating gifs on social media. That's certainly how I felt, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I want to read a quote from her, what what she said before she said she was going to resign. She said, at, at a press conference to explain herself, she said, I am not here today to defend my rural following. I'm here today to own that there's a difference between following all the rules and doing nothing wrong. I had to read that about 10 times <laughs> yeah, yeah. to make any sense of that. That's, that's like the Donald Rumsfeld quote. Yes, yes. <laughs> known so, knowns and known unknowns. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine, what are the lessons here? I think that there are two lessons that come to mind for me. One is that we need to pay our public officials a salary that is commensurate with their responsibilities. Fagan's salary as Secretary of State was just $77,000. That is much lower than many of her direct subordinates. Uh, We also know that she was in debt after a divorce in 2020. Financially, it probably made a lot of sense for her to take a contract with this company, even though it certainly created the appearance of a conflict of interest. The second thing that comes to mind is uh, related to the word I described, uh, the word I used to describe the scandal, which was brazen. The scandal was brazen. It is something that was uncovered in a public records request. This was recorded in official government documents. And that suggests to me that uh, the Democratic establishment in Oregon feels feels tight knit. It feels like it's maybe OK to be cozy with this type of business. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, it might might bear some lessons for us up here in Washington State too, especially as journalists who are looking into relationships between business and government. Maybe there's some some clues that we might want to take for 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 this for for future coverage of our own. I'm not sure. I'm are, sure. You, are you saying because because the, the we have one party so comfortably entrenched in Washington State? Less so here than in Oregon. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's something that came to mind for me when I was thinking about mm-hmm. what I might take away from this. Yeah, and you know. Um, I, I think that's while it while we shouldn't be taking you know delight in something bad that happens like this is corruption it looks like or something at least appearance of corruption but um, I think the reason I feel delighted in popcorn eating with the story is because it feels good to see journalism done that pulls something like this out you know it's mm. I'm rooting for the journalists here I think that's maybe why I feel so good about it yeah because yeah. there's a pledge drive going on that's why it's <laughs> in mind. Uh, so I by the way I don't suppose she's going to stay on now at this pot shop chain, right? I mean, it was never about her elected office connections you know. to begin with. 
<laughs> she she's given up the contract oh. already. <laughs> oh, so both jobs. Yeah, she's well, out. Of, she's out of both jobs. So well, what does the future hold for her? Yeah, I do want her to be able to support her family. That's a great question. I mean, like I said, she was a rising star in the party. She was previously an employment attorney. Perhaps she'll return to that field. Hmm. Okay, uh, another topic. You know, we always end week in review with something to smile about, and I'm not waiting till the very end of the show, because this week a, a, a literal smile came to us from KUOW reporter Kate Walters. Uh, Kate went to the Seattle King County Free Health Clinic, which was it had been canceled over the pandemic, the one at Seattle Center, huge free health clinic. Last week, it came back at full capacity for the first time, and Kate introduced us to someone who was there waiting for dental work and a medical checkup. Nadia Olashola brought a camp chair, books, and her laptop and waited for hours to be seen. Olashola came to this clinic pre-pandemic, and she says not having access to dental care here the past few years was tough. I needed a root canal. I um, wear a flipper and I lost that, and so um, I stopped smiling so much. A flipper is a partial denture, a removable fake tooth that replaces a missing one. During COVID time, it was um, good because the mask, you know, it hides that. (laughs) But, um, you know, that's really important to me, and that's why I'm here today. What does it mean to you to be able to get this fixed today? Oh, it's um, it's life changing. You know, it just gives you a beautiful smile, you know. And so um, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for the services and for the opportunity to be here. And while I am happy for Nadia's restored smile, health reporter Joanne Silberner, uh, underneath this is is the opposite of that feeling, because this is pointing to a big problem in our society which is a failed health system as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you look at, you know, who was there. Uh, I think about in 2020, 52% of them were uninsured, of the, of the people who came to the clinic. 40% had some, uh, which included Medicaid. And But even people who have some of these types of health insurance, include it doesn't cover everything. I'm not sure in Washington State, but gen, uh, overall Medicaid does not cover dental care. Uh, some of the, if you are insured, you might have copayments. Some of the insurance plans uh, have such high deductibles. You're paying so much of the the first few hundreds or even thousands of dollars of your health care that we just don't have a workable system. We, you know, we're putting so much money into the system, and even people with insurance still need this kind of help. So the only good news I saw in the numbers, of, you know, who was there was very, very low numbers of uh, military veterans, mostly because we've, the VA system seems to me at least to be something that is working, that is holding people through. But these, you know, these other forms of insurance that don't cover everything, and they're under threat. I mean, Medicaid, there's a big nas- move at the federal level to uh, to ha- have a work requirement in there. Now, if you're on Medicaid... Number one, you're poor. Number two, you're probably sick. That's what you know. If if you've applied for Medicaid and gone through that bother, you probably most people on Medicaid either can't work or they are working, and having to fill out papers to prove it is going to be very difficult. So that's a, a threat that's looming in the future. Yeah, there's there's no paperwork required at this um, health clinic, which I presume will be 
be back next year, if not before. I'm not sure. Is it just once a year? They do it more once often. Once a year. Than that. Yeah. So anybody can come, no ID, no proof of immigration status, that kind of stuff. Which I, we should say, you know, even things that scare people from applying for some of the, the government programs, like Medicaid, people don't apply because they're worried about the immigration status. In Washington State, you don't need to worry about they will not, the, the state will not turn over they will, will not turn over anything about your immigration status to anybody else. Hmm. And also this clinic will will connect you with free follow-up care. Uh, this Our reporter, Kate Walters, was saying in this piece that, uh, as you said, a lot of people, because they either don't have insurance or they've got high co-pays, they're reluctant to even go and get checked out because what if they find out they need a lot of expensive care? So... This um, this health clinic really is you know, it's so good to have it back. Here's one. So a ripple effect from COVID, the COVID pandemic, right? It's yeah. so many things. Yeah, but good to have it back, yeah. Yeah, I, I I had a hard time going to the dentist during I, I I you know I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I haven't been back to the dentist since you know the pandemic. So oh, you and me both. Okay, so we're not alone. But you've but, been brushing and flossing but, regularly. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if it's hard for you know us to do that, or or we have hangups, just imagine how hard it is for somebody who's living outside, or you know. And so I'm I'm so grateful that this opportunity exists to help them overcome some, whatever barriers still exist to them getting there. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to uh, see if there's anything else worth smiling about. Um, and I'm just going to take a little break because I think I could help us have something to smile about if I just felt like, you know, we our listeners get it. They're coming on board. They, we talk so much about journalism. You know, NPR just laid off a bunch of people. You probably know that. 10%. 10%. Uh, something like three dozen Washington, just in Washington State, newsrooms have closed since I think it was 2004. You know, you, you're familiar with this, right? Uh, cutbacks and shrink downs and layoffs. And KUOW is this spot where we can, we have the listeners with some some bucks to set aside to be able to invest in this local journalism source. So if you will go now and go to KUOW.org and donate whatever you can every month, just say, here's what I can do every single month into the future, or you give us a call, 206-543-9595, you would give your entire community something to smile about when it comes to to independent fact-based journalism. That's right. Um, so the way to do that, you know, is to call 206-543-9595 or go online to KUOW.org. You know, this this method of delivering you news without a paywall, um, you know, where nine out of 10 listeners don't support the station, it, it, it can't last that way. So we, we're changing our model. We had this big meeting and we, we talked about what are we going to do in the future when we can't rely on pledge drives this much. And we decided you know, the our management decided we're going to we're going to change the model. We're going to start relying more on sustaining members so that we can just know there's a reliable stream of income coming in. And we don't have to go to people as much on air to ask for that. And so we're looking towards a future where we don't even have to do this. Yeah. So you are a part of, you know, basically changing this direction of this uh, journey that we're on and course correcting here to a more sustainable future. So become a sustaining member today. And the way to do that is call 
543-9595. Am I saying the number right? Yes, I'm familiar with the number, 206-543-9595. Since I've been repeating it since I was a 16-year-old, whatever it was, a 19-year-old college student. Yes, and that used to be how we raised money. Well, it made sense. That was all we did, and that's everybody who was listening uh, could could chip in if they felt like it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, KOW is our broadcast signal, my voice right now, uh, and our our air schedule is not all of KUOW. We are we've got all these podcast offerings, and we have um, you know these these special series. We have a whole a wonderful web team. Go to KUOW.org. You know we have a, a, an, a an investigations team online. On and on and on. So yes, the the, the way to do it is to come to you and say um, you can keep. KUOW, you can help us avoid the fate of so many local newsrooms by sustaining us on a on a monthly into the future basis. So go to KUOW.org, click donate, or call 206-543-9595. Anything, wouldn't that make us smile? Is there anything else to smile about before we say goodbye to our weekend review team? I got one. Okay, hit me. Okay, uh, so last week my hand swelled up. I went to a hand specialist. Long story short, I learned something fascinating, and that is that it's not bad to crack your knuckles. No. Really? It, it turns out that's okay. I've heard that it's but nitrogen yeah. bubbles or something. I can't remember what well, it was. My, my first doctor, my main doctor told me, oh, no, you shouldn't crack your knuckles. And okay. then I went to this hand specialist to uh-huh. figure out why my hand was swelling up. And it was unrelated. It went away. So that problem solved. But... But he's like, by the way, like, is it okay to crack your knuckles? Uh-huh. And he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. Oh, but that's just big hand. <laughs> <laughs> big, big hand telling in the you, string. Telling you what they want you sure. to think. Yeah, so, they, so they don't have to come back when you've ruined your knuckles. <laughs> Why is knuckle cracking so satisfying when it doesn't, it's not really necessary? Well, what he told it? me that science doesn't know. <laughs> wow. Okay. Sci- health true. reporter Joanne Silberner, you can crack that knuckle cracking story. Here we go. Ooh, oh, oh, I wasn't oh, asking for oh. that. Oh, my that, my mem- my thing that's making me happy yeah. this week is remembering last week getting to hear Billy Collins uh, read poetry on Poet? Bainbridge Island. Yeah, does he and, live there? No, he lives in Florida, but he's got friends up there and yeah. he likes the island. And actually, Dyer Oxley wrote a lovely yeah, piece know. on the yeah. KUOW website, uh, worth a read. And that, was, that blog is called Today So Far. Yet another thing KUOW <laughs> does for you, so you can uh, call in support of that. Yes. Yeah. So that was just the memory of that. Yeah, Billy Collins is great. Anything else to smile about? Laura? Well, I was telling you guys before we went on the air that I started this new skincare routine uh, where I put snail mucus on my face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jury's out on whether it's going to give me glowing and or slimy skin, but it certainly is fun to talk about. <laughs> I think you're radiant. <laughs> glowing. Are you, are you literally Dewey. putting snail mucus on your face? Oh, yeah. This is the hot trend. This is what all the kids are talking about. Are you letting the snails do it? or is it an <laughs> No, it comes in a bottle, and please nobody tell me about the industrial snail farm farms that they use to harvest this mucus. Nobody tell me about it. I don't want to know. <laughs> the radiant Catherine Long, insider <laughs> investigative reporter, and our crack health journalist Joanne Silberner, and KOW housing reporter Joshua McNichols. Uh, thanks for being Week in Review. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Caught us all up, made us all smarter, and not for free because, you know, it costs money to produce a great show on KUOW. You're making it happen by going to KUOW.org right now. Thank you to producer Kevin Kniestet, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, Tio Popescu, Guy Nelson today, KUOW FM Seattle, KUOW Tumwater, and KQOW Bellingham. Make that donation. Sustaining monthly, every month. Do it. KUOW.org.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.